I'm Aaron Weintraub, and this is Inside Kurdistan. One of the most important conflicts of our time is the societal debate over institutional power. How much influence, how much weight uh, and importance should a parliament, a court, a university have on people's lives? Uh, A lot of backlash against these kinds of institutions has come from a place of mistrust. For example, if a government is full of corrupt officials, uh, why should we obey its laws? A lot of trust is undermined by newcomers uh, like social media, uh, where information is constantly flowing without any dissemination or verification. But another issue uh, is with partisanship, when those in power decide to push an agenda that they have on an institution. As an American, I can say that this is absolutely one of the biggest corroding factors uh, in the society that I come from. <laughs> and I see it here in Kurdistan as well. Professor Dilawar Al-Aldin is first and foremost a researcher who understands the dynamic of what happens when objective, peer-reviewed information meets a political machine. And he started on this understanding in the 1980s when he and other scientists sought to prove the use of chemical weapons on Kurdish communities during Saddam's war uh, to the British government, which is where we begin our conversation. But he went on to be an advocate not only for the use and access of objective scientific data for the sake of societal improvement, but also equal parts of critic and advocate in the early Kurdish government. And later, he became the Minister of Higher Education and Scientific Research in the KRG. And so we talk about his career, his views on the importance of objectivity and the corrupting influence of partisanship on research, on education, and on the future of Kurdistan. We also talk about his institution, uh, MERI, M-E-R-I, the Middle East Research Institute, which is an independent think tank uh, that covers policy research here in Erbil. So with all that covered, here's what we discussed. Professor Al Aldin, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for hosting me. Uh, I'd like to begin, actually, with your work back in the 80s uh, with the research that you did during the chemical attacks, and sort of that was your introduction into working with politicians. I was wondering if you could take me through that first. Yeah, this was a side issue, i.e. spare time research project. I was a researcher in medicine at the time, but I was also a lobbyist for human rights uh, within London's uh, corridors of power, including the legislative side, i.e. in the parliament and the government and the media. And we tried, we were at the time lobbying for Kurdish and Iraqi human rights, pushing for... um, uh, in a way, undermining the regime of Saddam and getting the British and the European governments to uh, stop selling arms to uh, Iraq and so on, and to recognize the plight of the Kurds and the way we were suppressed. And uh, and that was ongoing. Um, but when chemical weapons were used against the Kurds um, before and after Halabja, uh, then our lobby took a different turn. And uh, my own parents um, were exposed and became survivors of chemical weapon, my own siblings. So it, it had also a personal dimension to it. But what we noticed is that there was a gap in our uh, data ca- gathering in providing robust evidence to the media, uh, to the parliament decision makers on the uh, actual chemical weapons used and the number of people killed and the places they were uh, exposed to. Uh, and then uh, the exponential sort of number of times that uh, 
that Saddam kept uh, using chemical weapons and getting away with it, culminating in the Halabja uh, 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 massacre. So we were trying to uh, get the British government uh, and the media to accept that Saddam has developed a weapon of mass destruction, used it against Iran during the war, but now used it against its own people, and these are defenseless people. And this regime was backed by the West. So we had to um, add impact to our lobbying campaign. And the only way you can do it in democracies in Europe and the United States is to provide solid evidence that they cannot argue against. So my job was to gather the data, explain the background of the chemical nature of these uh, and why they were killing so many people so quickly, and even educate the media and others who are new to this field. Uh, and with time, we, we became very effective in this, so much so that when Kuwait war happened and uh, the West, entire West, uh, coal Western coalition went against Saddam, one of the biggest fears they had was what if Saddam used chemical weapons against British and American soldiers? And, uh, and the, in, the, in London, I was in London at the time, a lot of hospitals were given instructions uh, on preparing the ground uh, for uh, in chemically injured soldiers coming back and treating them. And very few people knew exactly what to do. This is where our experience came hand f uh, you know, handy too. But on the political side, what we learned through those experiences, knowing um, and understanding the decision-making process in the corridors of power in the UK helped us later. And then we found ourselves being very effective in uh, serving our cause and exposing uh, Saddam Hussein. One of the things that you brought up before we uh, uh, began this interview was the process in which you uh, gathered the evidence. I was wondering if you could take me through that again. Yeah. Obviously, we needed material to test in laboratories and provide the actual lab results to the uh, scientific journals or the uh, other media for them then to take it on to say, yes, this is robust enough um, uh, data. Uh, but accessing data was very difficult. Uh, we had to go through uh, Peshmerga liberated areas uh, via Turkey or Iran and uh, identify the areas that they were ex exposed to, um, get the soil samples in a proper manner that is credible enough for the labs to actually believe and test, and then smuggle them out in a way that again would be recognized as proper, but still taken through uh, Iran and Turkey, mainly Turkey, when Turkey itself was not cooperating. They were pretty much uh, f uh, for Saddam's regime. So anyway, doing all that, we needed some British colleagues to go, and they were professional, very highly credible people, to gather the uh, raw material, bring them back. And in the UK, we had to go to credible labs, reputable centers of excellence with great scientists whose uh, ability to um, test analyze and then publish uh, is not under any question. That's how we did it on a number of occasions. And that's how we managed to hit the media with this evidence, which complemented whatever else was ongoing from either the politicians lobbying elsewhere or the civil societies. But our evidence, the scientific evidence that we provided, added a, a, a momentum, added strength, added uh, a lot of uh, a reliability to the common statement, and that is Kurds being exposed to something that the international world considered illegal. 
as data has become more uh, available and and widespread, I would say that the obstacles for being able to get that are easier. But I would like to push back on the point that you made about being able to use sort of reputable institutions uh, to to prove points uh, and and get more political traction, because I'm from the generation where that stopped working. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'd like to, I'd like your insight sort of on sort of the availability of scientific evidence being more accessible than ever before. But at the same time with that, in part because of the media, uh, that data becoming more polarized than ever as well. Sure. Um, I think um, COVID showed how polarized science could be and how uh, we are dominated by uh, conspiracy theorists and social medias that can um, uh, doubt even scientific evidence. But science goes on. Scientific evidence uh, is a way of, of getting access to your um, uh, data and, and analyze them properly as well as publishing on them in a way that will not lose its impact. Our problem is that the public get its information from the social media more than the actual scientific papers that could be to them not readable or even boring and uh, and not convenient enough to be used. But this is our job as scientists to make sure that we stay the line and make sure that at the end of the day wins. And even with COVID, we saw how hard science will eventually win and, and then um, uh, get people get the benefit of that. Everywhere in the world, the vaccine made a big difference in people's lives in making this uh, pandemic to uh, to almost go away. And the people are healthy and they are prepared to forget about COVID. It's largely to do with the vaccine that is science-based, not based on whatever behavior that conspiracy theorists put in place. I don't know if it's just conspiracy theorists at this point. I would say also that there's a certain amount of party politics involved, uh, not just in the U.S., but in Kurdistan as well. Politics involved yeah. in everything we do everything our behavior our spending our governance everything is subject to politics so that has to be in place and managed but not losing sight of the actual drivers of um, uh, improvement of life and to actually to pivot uh, I wanted to talk about your work as the uh, Minister of Higher Education uh, because you you were telling me you sort of got this position because during the Kurdish government's infancy, you began publishing critiques about what exactly was happening with the early government in the KRG. And I'd like, I was wondering if you could go through that and talk to me about what exactly you were, you were publishing. Well, what I was publishing uh, was a mixture of things. Um, I grew uh, more critical with time because before the, uh, the, the establishment of Kurdish um, administration uh, in 91, or say November 91, and then leading to election 92, for decades we were dreaming about having the opportunity to determine our own future, establish our own democracy, and then through that emerge as the best nation and most democratic nation in the Middle East, and never repeat what our enemies did and never imitate what we rejected as bad rulers. So this is the background, basically. And as soon as we had the opportunity to establish a governing system, we started very well. Um, As soon as Safe Haven established and we elected um, a new government, we committed ourselves to a democracy that separates the powers, that uh, uh, that, that institutionalizes itself, and then we build the the, the foundations of a a new nation and a new state. Mm -hmm. Now, 
with all this dream, and then suddenly we found that the um, uh, the our uh, new system was actually gradually going back to what every Middle Eastern country had done, the way they went about politics and, and governance. And then finally it led to uh, the split of the two administrations, um, the two major parties, uh, continued their rivalry and they started fighting over a very limited uh, amount of budget and then uh, that led to the geographic as well as administrative s- split of Kurdistan. But even within each administration, they were not focused on rule of law, good governance and democracy and freedom of expression. They were they, as though that this the countries or in the Middle East are always run like this and they have to be run like this. Mm-hmm. So this made us uh, worried that the PUKKDP, for example, in particular, were not focused on reform. They were not focused on making the place more functional and more satisfying the needs of the nation in terms of services, in terms of efficiency, in finances, and then viability for the long term. Because the way we went about our internal power struggle, I became, and many people like me, became increasingly critical, and I still am, because it, this is my country. I love this country and I want the best for it and it it helps even the decision makers if I and people like me and the civil society remain critical but in a constructive way because after all we are in it together and it's it's our future that would be better if we all go for um, a better governance. The trajectory still can be upwards and we can collectively make this place a much better place. Therefore, my criticism in the 90s up to today is always about reform. Let's institutionalize. Let's make the system work. Let's put the checks and balances that actually makes this place not only a functional state, a functional, demo, a functional uh, uh, you know, uh, governing system, but a functioning democracy too. Well, and one of those institutions of democracy that's so vital is higher education and an investment in the next generation to allow that uh, reform to evolve naturally. So you eventually were given a bite at the apple. Can you <laughs> can you walk me through the, some of the reform that you had at the cabinet pr- uh, position sure. for higher education? It's actually the same kind of uh, continuous criticism that l- led me into this um, uh, experience, and that is when... Uh, Dr. Baram Saleh formed the government. He invited me to uh, join him uh, in the cabinet and take over the um, higher education system reform. So really what we... uh, I've always lived in higher education as a professor of medicine um, and I've always dreamed about, you know, improvement or, or change of that system. And I knew because I studied in... Kurdistan and I studied in Baghdad. I knew what I went through and what was wrong with the system. So with time, with my involvement in the UK in some kind of leadership position, leadership in the university as well as hospital, I realized what was wrong here. And it was to do with one thing, and that's quality. In the past, for the for decades, in the entire Middle East, there was no system of quality. Quality assurance, licensing, accreditation, ensuring that students are transformed from being raw material into leaders, professional leaders in the market, uh, lead Kurdistan into better place, better democracy, better prosperity, better economy. So in those two years that we stayed in government, my focus was on improving quality. And we introduced a lot of quality elements, starting from how students can feel they are valued, they are learning, and they can be transformed into leaders. 
on the curriculum that should be transformed into making people thinking critically, making students going away, getting away from didactic teaching and becoming more scientific debates and more critical thinking and becoming actual investigators and problem solvers. And then we focused on the management as well. The management still is not serving quality. The management is actually wasting a lot of resources while not being efficient and not being in, uh, uh, delivering on quality. So we try to change all of these elements, even the environment, even the gender equality, the health and safety. There was so much more to quality that if you define it as a package, but all under one name, and that is quality. Why quality? We want our, to make our graduates, our young talents, to be contributing to the building of this nation, but also internationally competitive. If anybody wants it to go abroad, they should be uh, employable abroad, successful, and then they come back and help us even more. Uh, we are not worried about people going abroad if that is the, the principle. Without a higher education that lays the foundation uh, for the young and talented graduates, Make pave the way for success. It's difficult to build a nation uh, based on imported uh, talents and based on, say, a system that actually produces the numbers but not the quality. So this was my experience in government. Has that quality continued since your time in cabinet? Uh, a lot of elements that we um, uh, introduced uh, remained because they were needed. They were uh, people got signed up to it, and they and we dismantled the previous system. They, we gave them no choice but to go this way. So a lot of these quality assurance issues stayed. But because we did not have time in two years to change the law, the law did not protect it. So the law was used. The, the law was a bad law anyway. I mean, I've said that. I, I don't hesitate to say that. That bad law stayed and prevented further progress, and many people used it to dismantle some other changes. But remember, there were generations of new scholars that who went abroad. We, we awarded scholarship to thousands of people who managed to reach their destination, and many, many of them came back. There were a lot of teachers who had been isolated from the rest of the world. We got them connected with the rest of the world into sabbaticals, into very many ways of getting in touch. We, got, we put pressure on people to do good research and publish and be connected with the rest of the world. And also we introduced measures of quality, how you could measure success, how you can rank universities. We did all of that. Many of these stayed, but they could have stayed better if we had changed the law. But I have to say, in Kurdistan and in Iraq, individuals matter, individual leaders matter. When individual leaders commit themselves to change, put their foot down and they uh, are prepared to drive it forward, things can only evolve from, uh, uh, from here upwards. I have to say there has been fluctuation. I'm not in a position to criticize my successors, but it is obvious that we are still back into the mode of promoting quantity. We have explosion of or exponential increase in universities and graduates, but we uh, quality is still suffering. Has party polarization affected higher education in Kurdistan? Party polarization affects every um, uh, part of life in Kurdistan and in the Middle East. And we are more and more so because this party polarization became institutionalized. Mm -hmm. It takes a great deal more of, of determination from the top to, to crack that. At the moment, there's no sign that this is actually starting. Uh, 
But if we do not start it early and, and effectively, we will be the ones suffering. In fact, the parties who are, which are keeping that polarization institutionalized are the main victims of it. Because when they are trying to look for talents, they end up in, uh, uh, inviting people like your good self, Oxford graduates, to come and, and establish a good uh, service here. Instead, we should have been partnering with you guys and our talents to impress you how good they are. Do you think that that also breeds a certain level of cynicism in the next generation? How do you combat that? Because what I see, and it's not just here, it's, it's regional, and it's, quite frankly, it's global. We have the same issue in the United States. It's, it's this idea of who you know matters much more than what you know. Education, higher education is not viewed as a silver bullet that it once was. And to bring it actually back to my point about data, for example, being more widespread than ever, research being more applicable than ever, but at the same time being watered down by uh, uh, just this endless amount of polarization through all these information currents. This phenomenon will not go away. It will get worse. This is uh, the gap between the the rulers and the ruled is getting wider and wider, and Mm -hmm. the cynicism will increase. And People are losing faith and trust in what the politicians say everywhere in the world, whether it's the United States or Kurdistan or anywhere else. But the best way of winning back their trust is to have the right checks and balances to ensure quality and transparency. When you're transparent, uh, this uh, WASTA thing or this appointment through whom you know will gradually disappear. It will never be eliminated overnight. And you don't want it to be completely eradicated because sometimes... On paper, some people look great, but on in reality, they are not. They are bad leaders, and you want leaders to appoint, for example. So there's a limit how much you want to completely make it like robotic. But if you have the right checks and balances, if you make it slightly transparent, even when you try to appoint with your heart, you find yourself prevented. Just like look at business. The real successful business people, what do they do when they appoint somebody? Do they appoint their cousins or the best person for the job? At the end of the day, they want somebody to make their money. Would their cousin? Would they accept a cousin who's going to lose their money, or would they appoint somebody who's going to make them richer? But if it is a state institution, state-run, and then there's no checks and balances, and people think that this money is like uh, came from heaven and without hard work, then people don't mind uh, this patronage system. The waster will grow. But importantly, you need to remember one other thing: we in Iraq since 1958 have been state-run, and it's like state socialism. Mm-hmm. And the nanny state was the main employer, and the private sector was very weak. And we learned traditionally that every graduate in the Saddam days, for example, even under Kurdish rule for a decade or so, every graduate expected appointment. And the private sector was also uh, parasitically dependent on the government. So the government was it. And now suddenly when you tell people no appointment, uh, Wasta comes in. And the poor governance system that we mentioned, the lack of checks and balances, of course, WASTA dominates and people become even more cynical and they are right to do so. But if you have the right checks and balances, the right reform, diversify your economy, change the culture of nanny state, you gradually make people used to the idea of the talents and competitiveness and merit is what gets you to success and richness. And this happens under a good governing system that makes the rule of law as a sovereign. There's also a gap between graduates being able to achieve higher education and graduate and then be able to access uh, a meaningful life of employment here, I think. What needs to be met in order to reform that, that employment gap for the next generation? 
We need to, first of all, we need to make sure that the public and the private sector are related in a healthy manner. Mm -hmm. At the moment, we have a lot of income coming from oil as the main commodity, going into governments or sometimes not. And from there, when it goes into the even private sector, it is, it's a one-way direction. In the United States, in Europe, there's a taxation system that provides a loop. When the private sector pays tax, when they get money for projects and they pay a lot of tax, that tax goes back, even individual tax, goes back to the government that will be recycled into more investment and more uh, functionality of the state with minimum dependence on salary from the state. And then when you diversify economy, less dependent on a single commodity that actually guarantees money coming to the states, you, you change the people's culture, mentality, and way of life, and so on. And then here we had the problem of people not having a secure retirement when they were in private sector. So even the ones who were working successfully in private sector and getting rich, they still maintain some kind of position in the government because they want, they, they want to be sure that when they're 80 years old, they still have a salary. We need to change that in the government and promote diversification of economy, make the chances of people's employment equal, and make sure the taxation is fair so that people don't mind paying taxes and that the private sector, the giant companies who are actually currently paying the least tax should be paying more tax, but they need to also understand how this tax is spent. Those who tax, pay tax, they expect accountability. They need to have a say. We need to make sure this government guarantees that individual taxpayers and giant taxpayers have a say in how this country is managed its resources, and its economy. We do not have that, but we should have that. It's within our reach. It's a matter of just having a roadmap with a determination to get there. To pivot real quick to your uh, current work with MERI, your research institute, how does this factor into your, your desire to develop sort of an open data portal for the next generation? Well, Mary, Middle East Research Institute, um, was established as a policy research designed purely to provide evidence-based policy or offer evidence-based policy through doing fundamental um, operational research as well as uh, top-level research and then engage policymakers and the public and try to push for roadmaps, reforms that actually makes this place better run. So uh, rule of law, Good governance, human rights, and a prosperous society is what we should all aim, be aiming at, and that's what we advocate. So we often bring people in um, roundtables under Chatham House rule, or we go individually to leaders to try and influence decisions, or we, have, we engage the public through big conferences. But all of these have to have a purpose, and we usually provide that purpose through our fundamental research. When we look at the challenges that everybody faces, the crisis that we face, when ISIS came, not it's not just a security challenge, but the uh, displacement challenge and the um, uh, financial uh, resources. And every time uh, we go from one crisis, we end up in another. And you can see that if you had been basing your policy on evidence, you can face those challenges and become more resilient. So our purpose in having a think tank is to occupy a niche that is a bridge between academia and practice. We bring the evidence to the practitioners who say your decision has to be based on evidence, not on what your party political advisors tell you, not on what you think might be anecdotes or subjective. So we try to bring objectivity, but actually 
evidence-based roadmaps that makes this place transform itself. We have been pretty successful on a, in our own modest way in influencing change, in influencing decision, in bringing about peace, in promoting social cohesion. We've done a lot of that f- uh, over the years, which is why we have, uh, luckily, I think we believe, we earn the, the respect of the opposition as well as the rulers, the civil society and others. It was hard, it was not easy to stand at equal distance between them, be critical, but also engaging. But we're lucky that even the decision makers, they are coming forward to us, they engage as well as the rest, while they know that we are critical of whatever government might do, because our job is to highlight, but we don't just highlight and leave it. We diagnose, we offer treatment, we offer ways of solving problems, and we offer our help with it. Very often we raise grants to help even state institutions on how to deal with their problems. So we don't stop at exposing problems in the system, like we are not power-seeking opposition to do that. We say what's the critical structural problems, we offer solutions, and we offer help, and even the after-help, after-treatment services. Do you have PDK or PUK affiliation? We don't have any affiliation with any party. Uh, And I can tell you that we do not accept funds from either PUK or KDP or government or any uh, uh, thing that would take away our freedom uh, of academic uh, publication. Uh, In the Middle East, it's a problem that it's difficult for any civil society organization to survive long term without affiliation to any of these. But we were an experiment. We show that if you're entirely grant funded, you can still survive. We are funded, um, we, have, we had over the years three grants, for example, from Europe, major grants uh, to hundreds of thousands of dollars under the Horizon 2020 uh, uh, grant scheme. We had USIP money, USAID money. We had Research Council money from UK, from Dutch uh, Research Council, from Norwegians. We are connecting with the rest of the universities in Europe and U- US. We have joint grants, joint applications. We had United Nations funding. So being entirely grant funded will free you from direct influence. But we do not act as aliens. We do not act as though we are outside the system. We are within the system, but if you're dependent for your life on on party political funding, they have ways of influencing your reports, your data, the timing, the nature of your writing, and that's what we do not allow. But the moment we get affiliated, I think that's the end of Mary. But hopefully we will never do that and we can still survive and serve the purpose we were designed for. And I wish you all the best of luck in it. Thank you so much, Professor. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. I'd like to thank our guest, Professor Dlauer Al-Din, for joining me. And I've gone ahead and included a link to his organization below. Feel free to check that out. And feel free to check us out at curtisdenin.net, as well as Apple, Spotify, or wherever podcasts play. And feel free to check us out at curtisdenin.net, as well as Apple, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform it is that you use. Uh, if you have any questions, be sure... If you have any questions, uh, be sure to write us at info at curtisdenin.net. Thanks again. I've been Aaron Weintraub, and this has been Inside Kurdistan. Inside Kurdistan.